Welcome to the Inside the Boards podcast, the podcast dedicated to helping you learn to think like a question writer so you can study smarter, not harder, and succeed in medical school. And now here's your host, Patrick Beeman. All right, so we are back one more time with Panacea Financial, our generous supporter for this health system science series. Panacea Financial's Dr. Ned Palmer, world-class MedPeds physician, real-life doctor. You're the chief strategy officer for Panacea Financial when you're not practicing medicine. And today you are our interlocutor answering the question, how do I transition to and pay for resident life? Um, I should probably start thinking about this because it's like February of the academic year. And if I'm a fourth year, oh, that time to move is coming right up. Thank you, Patrick, again for having me here. It's, it's been so exciting being uh, with Inside the Boards and the Health System Science Series. It's, it's so great to see what you guys have been putting together with, with the curriculum in this, I think, really interesting developing space for medical education. And I'm super glad to see uh, that this is becoming a focus of uh, med student curriculum. So really excited to partner with Inside the Boards and be ahead of the curve in terms of uh, medical education curriculum. <laughs> the fourth year of medical school can be an incredibly and surprising expensive year. Totally the best year, but totally the best year, but it can also be incredibly expensive. We're talking about this in February of 2021. This has been what I hope to be the weirdest uh, residency interview season ever. Ever. I'd be ever. Let's just set this as the weirdest and it never gets weirder than this. So already that this whole year, basically right from the summer that, that starts your fourth year is you're having to spend a load of money on residency applications. You then have to look, if you haven't done it yet, on Step 2 CSCK, the Comlex 2 exams, uh, depending on whether you're an MD or DO student. Um, you, you've got to start putting money out to the tune of thousands of dollars. And that's before you even hit the interview trail, if there's an interview trail. For instance, the year that I, I went and interviewed, I took 18 interviews in 16 different cities and spent about $9,000. To find my MedPeds forever home in Cincinnati, um, which is, uh, and so there's just all year there seem to be these expenses that that dig at you and 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 just come out of seemingly nowhere a little bit are always more surprisingly expensive than than they than they should be, and then you match. And you've got this wonderful day in the middle of March and the future is laid out and you finally see what's going on. And then there's this realization that now you have to move after this entire year. You've already spent ten dollars or $15,000 getting to this place. And now you're looking at taking all of your stuff, going to a new city, paying first and last month's rent. Uh, when I moved, I had to pay for, uh, licensure and credentialing and get it reimbursed. So I had to put a couple of thousand dollars on my credit card and wait for reimbursements, uh, on top of all the moving expenses. There are just so many financial shocks during the fourth year, uh, that it can be a really challenging time and, and unfortunately set up a high level of stress getting into your intern year, which is already a terribly stressful year from a work environment. Decently stressful, I can attest. Decently, decently stressful. Uh, and and especially now with, with this being the weirdest year ever, that hasn't made intern year less stressful. That has made moving harder. It's made 
just everything more challenging. Um, and so there's, there's important things uh, that med students can do during this fourth year to try to protect themselves as much as possible. And if nothing else, know where resources are if you need them. Yeah, I mean, everyone knows, like, I mean, you guys are financially uh, supporting our series, uh, which helps, you know, uh, basically pay Chris and Madison who help uh, make this stuff possible. But we're all helping each other. And Panacea does have a solution uh, for this difficult time in, in the fourth year. And that's one of the things that we want to be able to tell uh, our listeners about because we think it's super helpful if you're in that state of dropping 10 thou on all the you know interviews although i would say probably that is a maybe the only good thing with 2020's covid-19 pandemic is uh a premium zoom uh s- subscriptions like 10 bucks a month so if you can do all your interviews on that there there's one way to save a couple thousand yeah <laughs> um but i can't think of really anything else yeah, that's that's really tough to spin. Positive. Step two CS, I think, is still on hold as well, and that saves money. Oh, is it? But they haven't figured out what's going to come next, so that's may only be a temporary savings. I guess all I have to say on that is we'll see. Yeah. Oh, but sorry. Tell us about the PRN loan for our fourth years. Absolutely. So the the PRN loan is exactly as the name uh, would indicate. It's it's your money as needed. Uh, we understand better than anybody about these financial shocks, how they come up, how they seemingly uh, are, are always surprisingly more expensive than, than they ought to be. And that's why we designed this loan for fourth-year medical students, uh, as well as for residents and fellows, to be able to access funding in a fair, cheap, and quick way. Because it is so frustrating to be asked to go have your parents co-sign a loan when you're a med student and you are very much an adult. It's so frustrating to be offered twice the rate because you took out a lot of medical education debt and the traditional banks penalize you for it. And it's really frustrating to be wasting time doing these things, being rejected, being asked for supplemental information. Uh, And that's why we designed our product to be able to get you money in as little as 24 hours. We want to be there for the medical students out there across their career. Nice. I was in the military, so the the financial uh, it wasn't perfect because, like you know, making twenty thousand dollars a year uh, at the time, like a decade ago, it's it wasn't a lot of money to support a family. But uh, at at any rate, um, I remember applying for a mortgage uh, as a good example of a loan and trying to explain like th- just what was up. To, to different like mortgage companies um, after I got like a preliminary approval um, and then a uh, almost immediate rejection or a pending rejection unless I could prove like this, that, or the other thing. Half these uh, 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 companies, they, they just looked at like a debt to income ratio, which um, I didn't have that much debt except for like undergrad, but um, I didn't look that great um, financially. And then, you know, like two months later, I looked way better when I was a military resident because we made a little bit more than than the average um, uh, civilian resident. Uh, but still, just that whole thing you said about uh, having to get supplemental information, uh, that's so annoying. I just, uh, I hate that. I'm applying for a mortgage now too. And I was like, oh, wow, that was pretty simple. I like have my 
you know, like I had my tax returns, had like my my pay stubs, had like checking account statements. And I'm like, all right, cool. I'll send this off. And they're like, oh yeah, okay, looks good. Uh, oh yeah, but we also need all of this. And it was like a list of like 20 things. And it's just super annoying. And it's like in every financial kind of uh, context, things like this pop up. So if, if you guys are helping solve that or make it a little less painful, good on you. I think a huge part of the value is getting what you're going through. Instead of trying to explain to somebody what an M4 is and how you came to have finances like this and how it's actually a sign that you've got a great and stable financial future in front of you, you're going to get looked at by somebody who doesn't understand it and and evaluate you through traditional lens and only see risk and not see any of the benefits of the hard work that you've put in. Yeah. Well, this concludes, I, th I think this will conclude our little uh, series of talks about uh, how Panacea Financial can help medical students, but um, we'll end up doing another episode about Panacea uh, itself um, and more so about kind of financial literacy and healthcare economics here in the future very soon. But for now, I urge you guys really to go to panaceafinancial.com slash ITB and really uh, explore what a bank built for doctors by doctors uh, can do for your financial life. That, that is Panacea's, uh, I would say, probably almost mission, Hey, uh, if I could be so bold. Be bold. Physicians like yourself are building a bank for doctors and med students and to take care of our kind of unique financial lives. And that's that's just awesome to me. So go open a checking account or apply for a PRN loan if you're in the uh, market for that and have the need. Panaceafinancial.com slash ITB. Panacea Financial, a division of Sona Bank, member FDIC. Thanks again, Ned. Appreciate it. Thank you very much, Patrick. All right, well, then let's dive in on the Inside the Boards podcast. Um, I'm Patrick Beeman. I am an OBGYN, um, among other things, and I'm here today with Dr. Heidi Gullett and third-year medical student Andrea Zabo. And I'm told Gullet reminds with uh, <laughs> reminds Gullet rhymes with mullet, which I think is an awesome way to to put it when people are going to pronounce your last name. Uh, but Dr. Gullet, you are, I mean, I have rarely seen so many academic um, positions and faculty um, chairs and things that you're involved in. Um, what do you say you are? I say that um, I'm a family and public health physician, uh, faculty at Case, and um, I am a wife and mom. Nice. All right. And you are also just interesting uh, to the students who listen, probably. You are involved on the board of directors of the NBME. So, but we won't try to like, you know, like get any secrets out of you. <laughs> but everyone thinks you guys are trying to trick uh, students on the exams, but I try to tell them you're not. But <laughs> are you? Are you trying to trick students? No, it, not at all. It's, it's about um, making sure that people are safe to practice for the public. It's about public protection and safety, and it's about fairness. And um, I've been an item writer for the NBME for many years, probably seven or eight years now. Um, and so I appreciate that part of my work too. Well, there you have it. They're not trying to trick you. Uh, next up, uh, Andrea, you're a third year medical student. Uh, and besides being a third year medical student, what else are you, do you do, are you proud of? What's your background? 
Yeah, I mean, I um, am pretty happy to be back home um, going to school at medical school at Case Western Reserve University. Um, I think some of the things that I'm proud of at school are basically our past year working at the Cuyahoga County Board of Health and with our COVID-19 response. Um, and then otherwise, I think what else keeps me really busy at the medical school is um, our annual showcase of Doc Opera, which helps support our student-run health clinic. Doc Opera. Nice. Uh-huh. Yeah, that sounds cool. Um, well, yeah. Uh, so thanks to the AMA and Elsevier for supporting us with some content and connecting us with uh, our guests like you guys. Uh, today, um, we're kind of here to talk about, we could say HSS in general with kind of a focus on uh, systems thinking or leadership. Um, I'm not sure really what Maya assigned. Um, we threw together kind of a very uh, simple syllabus. Um, but the reason she connected us was because you guys started a project at the outset of the pandemic uh, related to our local health department. Um, and that serves as kind of a, a springboard to our discussion today. Um, and so I guess I'd ask Andrea to start. What What is this project you you guys did at the uh, local health department. Yeah, absolutely. I love to talk about it. So um, I was pretty lucky that I did some of my research at the Cuyahoga County Board of Health. So um, I was invited to, you know, kind of participate and see what the pandemic planning and things like that were all about at the Cuyahoga County Board of Health. Um, and when I got there, and of course, Dr. Gullett was working there quite a bit, um, you know, there was definitely quite a need for developing a contact tracing program. Um, especially as our cases start to climb and things like that. Um, you know, coming from our background with health system science and, you know, the systems thinking, we knew that we needed to involve more, um, you know, more of a workforce. And at the same time, you know, medical schools were really scrambling because a lot of their students were getting pulled out of clinical activities. So it paved the way for a really good um, relationship for um, medical students to come into the Cuyahoga County Board of Health and help develop that contact tracing program. Um, so that was that was kind of what we were really working on. Um, in addition to the contact tracing program, we also uh, kind of developed a cluster investigation team. So whenever there we were identifying that multiple cases were happening from a certain event or certain place, we kind of attacked it a little bit more um, aggressively and made sure that we were providing good guidance to wherever this cluster was happening. Um, and it also helped our contact tracing efforts in that sense. Got it. And I would think uh, contact tracing as a concept helps uh, illustrate some things about why doctors need to be systems-based thinkers. Um, Dr. Gullett, do you, can you speak to kind of um, how contact tracing or that the program specifically you guys set up um, illustrates the importance of systems thinking? Absolutely. So, Systems thinking is important for all kinds of medicine, um, but I think it's been readily apparent over the last 10 months in the COVID pandemic how important understanding systems and thinking through systems and adaptations within systems um, can really help improve the health of both individuals and populations. And so um, one of the most important things we talk about when we um, have med students in our practice is that it's really critical to think of um, patients in context, individuals in context of family or the community, their environment. And so when we uh, started doing contact tracing, that was critically important. And so we had some forms from the CDC about what information they wanted, but we really quickly realized we needed a lot more information to make sure that people were safe at home. We gave them uh, resources that they might need, but that we also considered how connected 
our world really is. And um, we needed to make sure that they were able to connect to a high level of care if they needed it. But also we needed to contact all of their contacts and find out how to keep them safe too. And um, so systems thinking was really probably the most important thing that we utilized at the beginning and, and throughout and are still using as today, we're trying to figure out how to give our vaccines and get our vaccines deployed. So lots of examples. Yeah, totally. So, um, and either of you, um, I'd like to, as, as much as we can hear from Andrea, because med students are, you know, kind of why this podcast exists. Um, but what, what components, like, what is a system to you, um, to put you on the spot? This hopefully is, um, some less or more gentle, uh, pimping than you'll see on the wards, but. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, so the system definitely that we were working with, it, it, you know, it's kind of complex because there's really so many systems within the system. So, you know, we were in the system of just making contact tracing kind of that was my biggest system that I worked as a part of. But, you know, there was also a context of the resource team was also a system um, to provide resources to those that we were helping with contact tracing. And then the hospitals were kind of their own system, but really, they were all nested in this even larger system. Um, so that really kind of demonstrated to me the importance of, you know, all these little parts in the system, but also all their collaborations in order to make things happen. Um, and we found that, you know, as the pandemic kind of went on, kind of the way that we went about things, um, you know, changed a little bit. So at first at the health department, we were like really important in providing just general guidance because a lot of people didn't know about COVID-19. And then eventually, you know, our role kind of changed to be more of the contact tracing. And then at one point when there wasn't a lot of testing, we were involved a lot with like the testing strategy and how to do things like that. So, um, you know, for me, the systems were, you know, the parts, you know, how we were all kind of connected to each other. Um, and then also just kind of how our roles shifted and adapted over time based on the need of our community. So was this your in initiative to get med students involved? You were thinking like, oh, man, now we're not going to be on rotations and we're still paying like $100 an hour uh, for the next year uh, for school. Uh, may as well find something to do or... I think it was a little bit of a combined effort from a lot of people. I know Dr. Gullett definitely had the vision to invite some medical students to come in. Um, and then there were also some uh, medical school administrators who were like, ah, where can we send students so that they can get these hours? And then I think, you know, after we started getting some students in the door, then I, then I tried to help step in um, because I had actually taken a year off um, for medical leave. So I was able to be at the Board of Health and kind of help organize and train students and kind of be there to make sure that, you know, changes from day to day were being relayed to the new set of students coming in. And from the time you guys kind of like had to stop uh, rotations to the time you started having med students involved in helping at the health department with these things? Like, how long was that? Um, so I actually started helping at the health department before everyone was cut out of rotations. But then I would say probably within a week, um, students were cut out of rotations. And then shortly, I mean, I would say within the next few days, we had students in the Board of Health. So Dr. Gullett, I imagine that you guys have some infrastructure then that makes it easy to implement things like that. But um, how did you view integrating students into the work that needed to be done uh, to review cases, um, do the contact tracing? Like, was that your first thought? Like, we can use the med students' uh, expertise um, to uh, kind of 
do these this kind of work that would otherwise probably just have a very tough time getting done. I don't even know what I'm asking there, but um, I just love that the students were involved. I often, I often tell students uh, when they would rotate with me, it's like, you know, remember you guys are adults and you've already, you know, done like two, three years of graduate level work. So you have a lot of expertise you probably don't give yourself credit for compared to the, you know, regular old public. Um, and it seems to me this is a, a really cool way that uh, you guys were able to deploy that. So. I don't even know if there's a question there, but well, I would just say that um, you know I really like how you framed that, and and for me, um, students are um, brilliant and inspiring, and um, we need to uh, give them opportunities to shine at every level of their professional development. And so it was not even a question for me that we had a need and we had a group of incredibly talented folks ready and willing to help. And so we needed to bring those together in a system that was functional and engaging and that where we built trust in a really difficult and stressful time. Um, and we were able to help everybody really work uh, to the level of their training and their talents and um, to, to also be part of the, the constant systems evolution that was part of these, these processes. We built this plane as we flew it. Like there was no playbook. I mean, we really, and there still isn't. I mean, we're just figuring it out as we go. And so it was our students at the table every step of the way at tactics meetings twice a day, giving feedback about how they think we need to change the workflow for this or that. And, you know, what we need to do here and what's missing here. I mean, that to me was energizing as an educator. And that's the way I think medical education should be. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I, you know, it's, it's nice when you're in, inside a context in which you can look at what your your work flow or work life is like um, on the front line and be able to offer input that people listen to. Um, I think that encourages something that gets different words in different contexts, but a creative spirit, entrepreneurial spirit, uh, leadership, um, yeah, and, and enabling students to do that. Also, I mean, it just makes sense too. There, there, I mean, I think a lot of people who've uh, been a med student and then gone on to teach students realize that sometimes just having that fresh set of eyes that has not been uh, influenced by years of uh, certain uh, habits that you develop as a doctor uh, can shed light on anything from the way you practice and document to the way you treat patients, um, ask them questions, or otherwise figure out their diagnoses. So that's pretty cool. I, I like that. Um, I, I, you know, two thumbs up or whatever to uh, Case Western, uh, which I was going to actually do their JDMD program back in uh, 2006 when I matriculated to the University of Toledo. And the reason is um, that I didn't go to Case was people talked me out of kind of, thank God now I say, uh, of doing a dual degree at that time. That would have been a, uh, just too long. I could not have handled all that schooling uh, uh, straight away. Looking back, though, if I never had to get a job and I could just keep like learning and doing like degrees and whatnot, I'd probably do that. But unfortunately, we can't. Eventually, you have to give back and contribute, <laughs> which you guys are doing. So we've got a bunch of cases here, uh, again, from Elsevier's uh, HSS review book. Um, unfortunately, some of these are not quite 
um, NBME uh, level questions, uh, the sorts of things you would exactly see in format on the USMLE or another standardized exam in med school. Uh, but nevertheless, they're illustrative of some of these HSS concepts that we we're tackling throughout this series. So would you guys want to move into that at this point? That would be great. All right, perfect. And then I will say before we do that, um, case three is kind of unwieldy in terms of its stem. Um, I'm fine with that. Uh, and it, it's just up to you. But if you do think it's a little too complex for audio consumption, we could probably just, you know, like define a complex adapt adaptive system. Yeah. I mean, I think it is definitely, it is a little bit lengthy, but and and I think that's fine. I mean, it's a story too, so it's not like you you have to keep in mind a bunch of you know unique uh, pertinent positives or negatives. So, would you want to read the case and go through um, the stem and answer choices, and then yeah, I can do that. And then we can punt to Dr. Gullet the, you know, walking us through the answer choices, um, why one is correct over the other. Because what I usually do is like, you know, a primary care clinic, go through the case, and then the question we're being asked here is how does this clinic demonstrate a complex adaptive system? And we've got A is this, B is that, and then either we We'll pause there and just give the straight up answer or return to the stem and go through, you know, how to break this down. It, I don't think it really matters as long as we're able to communicate, as I say, something that students can take away with them from the episode and, you know, go into the test center with. Sounds good. Well, then, Andrea, I will ask you to take this first case that we have here. It's a little lengthy, but, um, you know, listener, just got a pause, you can do that. Um, and it's a story. So let's hear this story. All right. So this is case number three. A primary care clinic decides to implement an EHR for the first time. The first year after the EHR is put in place, the clinic receives approximately a thousand messages a month via the EHR. A year later, the number has increased to 10,000 messages a month. The clinic is suffering from high employee turnover, both among physicians and nursing staff who are struggling to handle the influx of electronic messages. To address concerns, the clinic manager assesses all the messages coming into the clinic and divides them into categories like prescription refill requests, urgent concerns, requests for forms to be filled out. The manager then holds a meeting with all of, these, all of the staff to get agreement on which of the staff should be addressing which category of messages. After discussion, the staff agrees that physicians need to answer urgent concerns, the physician assistants will address prescription refill requests, and nurses can fill out most of the paperwork. The manager then hires a triage staff member to ensure the messages are sent to the appropriate person. After several months, the manager checks in to assess staff member burnout and finds the situation has improved for nurses and physicians, but the physician assistants are still being overwhelmed by prescription refill requests. The manager reviews the data and finds that renewing controlled substances is taking the most time and causing the most frustration. Therefore, refills for controlled substances are sent directly to the patient's primary care provider. The question is, how does this clinic demonstrate a complex adaptive system? A, the clinic chooses not to reassess or iterate its messaging process. B, the clinic manager employs hierarchy to make decisions unilaterally. C, the clinic adapts multiple times to an increase 
in work that previously did not exist, or D, none of the above. Yeah, that's a, there's a lot there. <laughs> there is a lot there. Dr. Gullett, uh, you, you've got all those uh, titles as an educator, so walk us through how to answer something like this and think about a situation that sounds kind of real life. Yeah, absolutely. So when I first um, read this case, I was like, I think they came to my clinic and they wrote a story about us (laughs) 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 because it was incredibly realistic. (laughs) So it resonated with me a lot. So when answering questions like this, um, you know, a lot of times in medicine, we use jargon. You know, we use these terms that don't mean a lot to anybody outside of our narrow sector. And sometimes that can divide us from, from other people and other colleagues. But We have to figure out how to do that and test taking as part of that. So thinking about complex adaptive system, you really want to think about what are the ways that a system can move and change to all of the different inputs around it. And I think um, one of the things that Andrea and I both thought was that this question, so not just this vignette, but the discussion that we talked about earlier of our work at the Board of Health is really a complex adaptive system. And so when you're thinking about answering questions like this, you want to think back to like, okay, when I was on the wards or when I was in this health system, what did I see? You know, I was rotating here. What did I see? And how did, how did I see quality improvement changing or the system adapting to be a, um, a way that provides for um, better infrastructure and systems changes to help people be healthier? And I will say too, in the NBME content outline, um, it does talk about uh, systems-based practice and in, in specifics, what students uh, should end up knowing. Um, and one of those is understanding the complexity of systems and systems thinking and um, how complexity, for instance, leads to error. Um, and they also ask students to know about the organizational behavior and culture. Um, so I suppose that could be workplace design and processes, the you know different staffing roles, um, uh, EHR-specific uh, choice, and, and things of that nature. So this, too, is, believe it or not, it's relevant. I, um, I guess I'll, I'll ask a leading question just to follow up on what you just said, Dr. Gullett. Um, is health system science an afterthought? It is, it is not. It's actually the way that uh, we care for people, individuals, and the way that we care for communities and populations. And so if it is taught as an afterthought, and it is not going to be successful in helping people understand how they are agents of change in a system, as medical students, as residents, and as physicians in practice, we are going to be in systems our entire life. We already are. But as you progress through your development as a physician, you are an agent of change at every step of the way. And so health system science is equipping uh, learners with the tools to be that agents of change in a system that sometimes seems broken or frustrating or overwhelming. We don't want it to be that. We want you to see what needs to be changed and adapt the system to be better. Absolutely. Um, and so we, I, I don't know, I wasn't, uh, I kind of spaced out for a second, but um, do we give the answer for how does this clinic demonstrate a complex adaptive system, which was choice C, the clinic adapts multiple times to an increase in work that previously did not exist? If we didn't, there it is. Um, anything more to say about that particular question? Nope, we're good. All right, Andrea, what is the follow-up then for this case? There's another question that uh, this book is asking us to think about. 
Yeah. So the follow-up question is, how did the clinic manager first engage staff in the discussion of how to address messages? Your answer choices are A, the manager had a meeting to address mental models about which group should address which message. B, the manager gathered data on the types and numbers of messages that the clinic was receiving. C, the manager came in with a plan for how to address the messages and communicated that to staff. D, which is both A and B, or E, which is all of the above. Yeah, well, this one makes me thankful um, that they don't do uh, these sorts of questions on, uh, well, usually uh, board-type exams within uh, medicine generally, and certainly not on the USMLE. But uh, the answer choice here is uh, both A and B. Um, and Dr. Gullick, can you walk us through why it's A and B and why C, which was the manager came in with a plan for how to address the messages and communicated that to the staff is not, um, not only not the answer that would be scored correctly here, at least in the HSS review book, but also not like an optimal approach. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So um, systems are um, uh, designed and they get the results uh, for their way that they're designed, right? We, we can talk about that in a lot of contexts, but people work within those systems and they can adapt things within those systems. And so if you have a manager who does what C is, which is they come in with a plan and they just tell everybody how it's going to be, the engagement of people working in that system will not be the same as if the people who are in the system have an opportunity to share their own mental models, their own way of thinking about how they see themselves in the system, and also about what needs to change. So gathering data on what's there. Um, doctors, I think, are notorious for thinking that you know they do things better in, in systems than they do, right? And then we get shown data and we compare it to our colleagues and we're like, oh, you know, I didn't close my messages in a certain amount of time, right? You know, oh, I guess, you know, I can't argue with those data, right? They're there. But you really do have to have a combination. A lot of times in public health, we say head and heart approach. So we give people data that speaks to their head. But we also work with their heart and we want to know what they're thinking and how they see things changing and how they want to engage themselves in, in um, making things better. So that's why it's A and B. And that's why, um, you know, people have to be very relational in systems in order to help them improve and to see patient safety uh, also be a big part of that is, is really important. Yeah. I noticed you, you went to Wright State University in Dayton, right? Yeah, you did a lot of research about us before this podcast, didn't you? I'm not going to lie. I did. I just Googled your names and looked at like the top two results. So um, I'm, I'm a fast reader. <laughs> Plus, you're, you have that page on, I mean, like your CV is, it's a book, man. Um, <laughs> and you guys got some press too, um, uh, Andrea, uh, for the project you did that we were talking about. But uh, to return to Dayton, Ohio, um, I did my residency at uh, Wright-Patterson Air Force Base. Um, and so the military um, base, you know, military in general is a very hierarchical system. But um, in my seven years in the military, I even found there's a there was definitely the necessity of uh, I don't know. I don't want to say fudging the hierarchy. Well, yeah, in one sense, um, figuring out how to balance the hierarchy of authority uh, that occurs within the ranks of the military and, um, you know, the the uh, collaborative um, 
processes and um, nature of the work that individual teams had, like for instance, in our OBGYN flight. I was the medical director. We had a flight director who handled more like administrative stuff. We had some NPs or um, uh, midwives and other physicians. We had, you know, the equivalent of all the things you'd expect uh, within the context of a, a practice. And uh, it, it just, you know, goes to show even, I, I can just think of so many situations where it just would not have worked, absolutely would not have worked for somebody to come up from on high and be like, this is the way it's going to be done. Now, sometimes they did do that and would have to for you know, non-compliant message openers, I suppose. Um, You know, you need, I guess, that sort of accountability. But um, even in the context of the military, this sort of uh, systems-based thinking and less less hierarchical model um, seems to be almost necessary to continue things uh, moving and improving um, and adapting. So this uh, makes a lot of sense. And I did my third year OBGYN clerkship at Wright Pat. You did? I wow. did. Can I ask what year that was? A long time before you were there. <laughs> so I was there 2010 to 14. Yeah, I'm a little older. <laughs> Dr. Campbell, Mark Campbell, was he there at the time? You might not remember all the faculty. Some were there like longer than they were supposed to be from a military context, but... Um, that was, a, I bet that was a good rotation. Uh, it was really good when I was there as a resident uh, for students. They got to do a lot of things um, uh, more than, unfortunately, I think students get to do in a lot of other places nowadays. But yeah, it was a little hard as a civilian because it was right after 9 11. So that tells you how long ago it was. So I, ha- I have to go really early in the morning to get through security as a civilian because they would like take the mirrors around my car and like. Oh, yeah. Oh, I forgot about that. Stuff. Yeah, I didn't have to worry yeah. about that. My, my wife uh, went to Wright State and uh, she's psychiatry, but she had to deal with all that stuff too. Um, at any rate, let's, uh, I guess, return to our case here. We are on. I guess the the next one we don't have a case for, uh, but it's a question worth thinking about. So, and this question is, systems thinking links a person's environment to what characteristic? And what are the, what are the choices here, Andrea? Our choices for this one are A, skills, B, knowledge, C, behavior, or D, all of the above. All right. So what's the answer? answer for this one is C, behavior. Okay. And how does behavior um, link a person's environment to um, systems thinking? Or how does systems thinking link a uh, person's environment to their behavior? Yes, I I actually had a harder time on this one. But for me, um, I think it was really helpful to think of the relationship that there is between kind of the structure of a system and someone's behavior. Um, So I often relate it kind of back to how Dr. Gullett said, you know, thinking about our past experiences, I often relate it back to kind of my, my time at the health department and how you know, the, the needs in our systems were changing with time and how, you know, our structure of the system, you know, at first we didn't have, um, you know, testing happening at hospitals as much. Um, and so it was really kind of up to the health department to be going into residential care facilities to do this sort of testing. So for me, kind of the structure of how the system was made 
um, kind of influenced how our behavior was and how we could address all these needs uh, in the system. Makes sense. Anything to add there, Dr. Gallup? No, I, I think um, it's just really important when you're in training to think about um, how you're influenced by the system, but also how you can influence the system. It's a two-way thing. And I think that when you think in systems, um, sometimes you can see how big the problems really are. But then if you look at a smaller microsystem level, you can see that you could be the one that's contributing to that patient safety issue in a really positive way. Or you could be the one that thinks about how we redesign a workflow so that it works better or it's more efficient. So it really works both ways. And, and it's not, um, it, hopefully for trainees, sometimes they may feel like they don't have autonomy. But I hope when thinking about um, systems thinking, it's a tool to empower you to work differently, to work more efficiently and to work um, in ways that um, really utilize your um, ways of thinking and the lens that you bring to the work. Yeah, and it's probably as uh, little as it may feel like this, uh, that's part of uh, systems uh, thinking is part of uh, the ACGME's um, kind of educational goals for all residents um, and probably the um, LCMEs too, but um, I haven't looked at that stuff in a long time. Um, what can you think of an example in your own um, projects related to the um, uh, uh, public health um, contact tracing and COVID nineteen stuff that you guys all implemented that would illustrate how uh, students specifically could be change agents or how uh, the system um, adapted to something unexpected or otherwise. Um, uh, got changed because of uh, somebody's systems-based thinking? Either of you, I'm not sure who would be best to uh, field that question to. But Dr. Gullett, do you have thoughts on this one? So I'd like to talk about Andrea for a moment. Oh, she can hear us. So <laughs> there were many occasions where um, working through the COVID-19 uh, response, we would meet twice a day in tactics meetings at nine in the morning and three in the afternoon. And we would work through our workflows. And sometimes those were in painstaking detail at the micro level. And sometimes they were linking to the 30,000 foot big picture. And we have here at the health department where I'm at right now, where we spend a lot of our time, we have a big dry erase wall in one of our team rooms. And we literally would cover the dry erase wall and we would draw linkages and, and we would make lists and we would you know really try to organize our thinking. And um, Andrea many, many, many times stepped up with solutions and interventions and workflow changes that really steered our course differently and enabled us to actually meet people's needs um, where, where we were blinded. But because she was on the phone and she was hearing patterns of what people were saying, um, she was able to bring to tactics and say, okay, I really think we need to focus on you know, uh, providing people resources for this because I'm hearing this repeatedly. Or I've seen a pattern of infections that came from this location or this particular cluster is linked to, you know, some events that happened. You know, so it was really, I can just tell you example after example of how she really, um, as one person, was able to use her systems thinking to change the course of our response in real time. Um, and there has to be psychological safety when you are in those high stakes environments. Um, but we had trust and we trusted one another and her voice was equal to everybody else at the table. So, um, or I hope she felt that way. <laughs> I don't want to project that. Um, so Andrea, I don't know, you're very humble and I know you don't talk about yourself a lot, but there are a lot of examples. So you could uh, follow up on one. 
Oh, we should make you do it then. Give us an example. Put your feet to the fire. Can you think of something that uh, you were able to, um, that would illustrate this point here? Yeah, you're really putting me on the spot. Thank you very much, Dr. Agullet. <laughs> do you want to talk about what you did with the state? I could, Yeah, sure. I could talk about that. Um, I don't even know how it came up, but somehow we were contacted by um, the state and that they had a they had heard about the contact tracing program that we had um, in our county. So the Ohio Department of Health reached out to us because um, they wanted us to provide some tips because we had been on the front lines and been doing the contact tracing um, and they were hiring a bunch of folks and training them. So um, they you know wanted to get our input since we were on the front lines, um, you know, of calling those folks. Um, so, uh, myself and then another, uh, preventative medicine resident over at university hospitals helped me. Um, we kind of put together a nice PowerPoint and, um, led a few, uh, training presentations for these Ohio, uh, department of health individuals, just kind of going over basic interview skills, um, and, you know, how to ask certain questions, kind of some issues that folks often run into. But I think there was multiple, um, experiences, you know, at the board of health where, you know, there were a lot of students, um, who wanted to, you know, help contribute more. And they were, like Dr. Gullett said, they were always up there at the tactics meetings talking about different changes that we could make in the flow or, you know, needs that needed to be addressed by folks. You know, I forgot to ask earlier, if I were a medical student or even, uh, I mean, for contact tracing, my level of knowledge would be um, probably even behind uh, your current day med student for sure. But um, if you had to you know, tell me what, what that kind of looks like. If I came in, I'm like, I want to help. What would you, um, what do you teach uh, them to do? What does the practical work look like? So the practical work kind of basically what I did every day was I kind of went over all the forms that needed to be filled out. Cause we just had a lot of data that we were gathering both that was required to be reported to the state and things like that. Um, but also some of our own things that we talked about. So we wanted to make sure that we were asking um, the people we were talking to about their resource needs that they might've had. Um, and just making sure that people knew the right questions to ask uh, in order to do that contact tracing. Where did you go? How did you get there? Did you take an Uber? You know, and then trying to get all that information about that Uber driver um, as much as you can about that. So a lot of logistical things to kind of go through that training. But I think we were really lucky in that medical students know how to get, um, you know, how to get a good uh, history of presenting illness. Um, so they did a phenomenal job. And it was very simple for them to be able to gather that symptom history um, because that was, you know, something that we report to the state, but also internally we were using to understand, you know, how were people presenting with their symptoms? Um, and then additionally, their past medical history, it was very easy for students to be able to do that. Yeah, again, students don't give themselves often enough credit because medical education is, you know, a professional graduate kind of um program but like when you really think about what doctors do once we close that door um or <laughs> open the door and go back to our computers to document i mean the things you learn related to you know just uh human relationships and and uh interpersonal skills well hopefully people are learning that uh sometimes that's more innate it seems than uh can be taught uh but the things you learn about uh how to um be a sleuth um how to ask questions and how to uh you know set somebody at ease to be willing and uh trust you to answer things 
you know, how to construct and organize your thoughts in a way that can be written down um, or communicated to another colleague. Like these are, you know, lots of things you kind of learn by osmosis, if you will, uh, throughout medical education. Um, so, you know, there's lots of opportunities here. And I think the HSS curriculum that is um, arising in which we're trying to contribute to uh, disseminating really systematizes some of those things in a way that uh, hopefully will will help uh, students become doctors who you know really lead their organizations um, as change agents. So, uh, leadership, Dr. Gullet, what role does leadership play in um, in uh, I guess? adapt in the adaptation process because you talk about these tactics meetings and if you you know you're in leadership and you're probably asking the questions maybe holding the chalk I, you know, I don't know um, writing the reports what makes a good leader able to partner with those who are I don't want to say below but I, I understand that that's probably immediately um, understandable uh, to those listening, you know, so for somebody who's kind of in a subordinate uh, role. Yeah, leadership is really important. And, um, you know, I don't think we spend much time in medical school on uh, cultivating leadership qualities. I mean, I think there are opportunities to do that, but there isn't like a leadership course. You know, you get, get pieces and parts, and then um, we hope that you also learn by watching others. But, you know, really leadership is, um, there are a lot of pieces of it that, that take intentionality, regular intentionality, that that some formal teaching and training, um, there are pieces of it too. So for me, um, you know, I actually took a formal leadership course in my master's in public health program. And uh, it forced me to actually um, get a bunch of evaluations from people all around who, who I interact with in different ways. That was years ago. That was like in like 2005 or six. Um, and I've never forgotten that because I learned things I never would have otherwise known about how I interact with people. And it, it really helped me realize, um, you know, how I could be better. And I am constantly trying to think about and be intentional about how to be more inclusive. And I mentioned psychological safety earlier, but I think um, it's really important to set a tone when you're in a leadership role, regardless of what that looks like, what context it is, where people know they're safe. And you can disagree with um, safety. So you can disagree. And let me tell you, in high pressure situations, in a pandemic, there's a lot of disagreement. But you have to be able to disagree respectfully and professionally. And people have to know they're safe speaking up. Because if not, it'll be that answer choice C that we talked about earlier, where you're just told what to do. And there is an engagement and investment. So for me, leadership's really, really important. And um, you know, I've learned from a lot of great leaders in my life, and I've learned from a lot of leaders that I didn't particularly enjoy working with, and a lot of people in between. And um, I just hope that... Um, to put it professionally <laughs> and respectfully. I just hope the students listening know that they're leaders too, and people are already looking at them. And yep, um, so the things they do are, um, are really, they matter for patients already. And um, they'll be leaders the rest of their career, but we need to help them be better leaders um, than they would be without feedback and without guidance. Yeah, absolutely. All right. Well, we have a few minutes left and some uh, uh, questions that we should probably cover that are um, not case-based, but um, let's go through them. So, Andrea, do you mind uh, going through these? And Dr. Gullett, if you can expand on the answers that we get. Yeah. 
So I think our next one is, what is the most important determinant of a system's behavior? And your answer choices are A, function or purpose, B, interconnections, C, elements, D, events, or E, all of the above. And the correct answer here is function and purpose. I don't know, these questions uh, kind of drive me nuts because I'm like, uh, uh, you know, in one sense, I'm like, man, I wish like USMLE questions were like this because you're like just grammatically, you can eliminate <laughs> choice E. But um, our answer to what's the most important determinant of a system's behavior is A, it's function and purpose. And and why is that the case, Dr. Gullett? Uh, well, this is, I think, all of these are parts of systems. Those are all unique parts of systems. And so this is talking about behavior. So earlier I mentioned that systems get the results they're designed to get. And so we have to understand the components of a system and how they work together to understand what the outputs are. And if the output, outputs are the function or behavior or purpose is not what we want, then we fix the pieces of the system. Um, so I think that, that this is just helping us think through um, just basic understanding of systems and complex systems and how we can change them. Um, well, let's see, let's, we got a couple more. Andrea, what's next? Some more like definitional questions that are great. Yeah. Next one is what constitutes a system? And answer A is relationships, feedback loops, reflections. B is parts, connections, and boundaries. C, tools, methods, approaches. And D, interrelationships, perspectives, and boundaries. All right, Dr. Gullet, what's what is the what constitutes a system? So the answer here is B, parts, connections, and boundaries. So systems are collections of a lot of um, interconnected parts, and they generally have a common purpose. Um, but uh, you have to understand the confines of each of the pieces of the system, um, and then how they work together. Can you give an example um, based on the? Uh, uh, health department where you guys have worked together of some of the parts, connections, boundaries? Yeah, I can talk a little bit about it. Um, so I think the most obvious boundary for us was kind of in a sense Cuyahoga County. Um, we really tried to limit ourselves to Cuyahoga County since we are the Cuyahoga County Department of Health or Board of Health. Makes sense. Um, it made it a little bit confusing though because Cleveland Department of Public Health is also in Cuyahoga County, but they themselves are their own jurisdiction. So that made that boundary tricky. Interesting. <laughs> um, but kind of like how I was talking about before, you know, we had a lot of parts kind of in our system, depending on what you looked at. So some of our parts included kind of our hospital partners, you know, the Board of Health itself, um, and just the general public, you know, some of those businesses that they worked at residential care facilities, all of these were parts of our massive system. And we all were connected because we were regularly in communication with all of these groups of people. And there were, you know, communication routes between all of us um, in order to work together to fight this pandemic. Yeah. All right. Thank you. Uh, final one. What is our final question to discuss today? Final question is, which of the following is an emerging property of a complex system? Answer choices are A, nested systems, B, iteration, C, self-organization, D, instability, E, simple rules, and F, all of the above. All right, Dr. Gullett, lay some wisdom on us. All right. <laughs> <laughs> so it's F, all of the above. Um, so uh, I, I think actually this might make more sense if I tell just a brief example. So um, in our work at the health department, um, 
we've been doing community health improvement planning, which is actually what Andrea did her uh, MD thesis research on. Um, and we've been working with a lot of community partners. This is pre-COVID uh, for a number of years. Um, and the idea here is um, that we contribute to improving the health of the community, including addressing things like structural racism in our greater Cleveland area. Um, and when we first set out, we realized that, you know, um, we were all working alone in our silos and we were doing good work independently, but there wasn't a collective purpose necessarily. And so we've learned over the years, the working together and building relationships that we've built a system of community health improvement. And that system is complex and it's constantly changing, but we know now that we are working together in ways we never could have dreamed possible before. And that's emerging properties of a system. Like things are changing, things are, are working together differently. And so you have these, these jargony words that we're here, right? Like nested systems, iteration, self-organization, instability, simple rules. But all five of those are things that we actually do in our community health improvement system. Um, and including we have rules that we start every meeting with. And we talk about how our work is changing and, and how we're um, really trying to change the system to be equitable. So that's an example that maybe hopefully helps people see how this could be you know, thought of in a concrete way. Um, but it's really about seeing how things work differently. And the, the whole is much greater than the sum of the parts working in individually. Yeah. And uh, of necessity, some of these emergent properties uh, come about because of the very nature of a system being constitutive or constituted by parts, connections, and boundaries. When you have those things, the result is going to be epiphenomena or, or merging properties. I, I love this. I, if I, I told you before that, and I say this, I feel like every episode, so people are probably going to be like, when's this guy just going to like quit doing medicine and go back <laughs> to philosophy? Um, just this this idea of, of um, relationality and what emerges from relations amongst not just like parts in our um, uh, healthcare uh, systems or, um, or between individuals, but really anything with which a person or other thing can have a relation leads to something greater than just uh, the two or more parts together. So if I had more time, I would probably write an essay exploring that relationality, but I probably will have to save it to retirement. Um, Unfortunately. <laughs> all right. Well, thank you so much for your time. If there's nothing else, um, you guys have a happy set of holidays here. Um, Merry Christmas and all of that stuff. Um, Merry virtual Christmas, probably <laughs> for most Zoom of us. Christmas <laughs> Right. <laughs> I know I'm kind of bummed. This is like one of my favorite, uh, uh, one of the only and favorite family events that occurs with the extended family in the area. And this year we're not doing it, we're not doing it. So making that sacrifice. But making us public health people proud. <laughs> right. Exactly. And that's, that's not the only reason we're doing it, but it's certainly part of it, right? Um, couldn't do this podcast and invite you on and be like, all right, I'm out. Heading over to a 25, 30 person uh, party with a bunch of people over like 50, 60. Um, all right. Well, thanks. And uh, good luck, Andrea, on your uh, uh, education as well. Thank you so much, Dr. Beeman. I appreciate it. Thank you so much. <laughs>